Hey, this is Kim. Welcome back to Weber County's Greatest Generation, where we talk about the amazing stories of the servicemen from Weber County who served in World War II. So last week we were talking about the story of two best friends, Sergeant Howard Hunt from Plain City and Private First Class Arnold Rose from Warren. Arnold and Howard went to school together in Plain City and later at Weber High School. They enlisted together, trained together, and they stayed together for all of their training. And it would end up on May 12, 1944. They died on the same day in Italy. There was an article in the Standard Examiner that talked about being best friends and dying. I mentioned last week that after I was finishing up researching that story, I found out there were actually four friends who had gone to school together, trained together, went overseas together, and all four died in Italy. One died on the same day, May 12th, and one died on May 20th. This connection has happened a couple of times in um, some other stories where Weber County boys are actually together and are um, dying about the, or on the same day. But in most cases, um, they didn't recognize it. So as I'm going back and finding these connections, it's really interesting. So in addition, and as a follow-up to this story last week, we're going to talk about Private First Class Fred Gibson, who was born just two weeks after Harold Easton Warren and Private First Class Harold Moline from the little town of Taylor. Taylor is another small um, city of Weber County at the very uh, west central end, and it has a population of 367 in 1940. So along with Plain City and Warren, it's another very tiny town. So Fred Ephraim Gibson uh, was the son of Ralph B. and Jane Hipwell Gibson. He attended school in Warren and Plain City, and he was a farmer. Harold Moline was born in Taylor on September 5, 1922. He was the son of John and Mary Fielding Moline. He attended school in Taylor and then went to Weber High, which at the time was located between 11th and 12th on Washington Boulevard in Ogden. He was prominent in musical circles, and it said he played the accordion with the Singleton Orchestra. So all four of them trained at Camp Gruber, Oklahoma, Shreveport, Louisiana, and Fort Sam Houston. They were all shipped overseas together and arrived in December of 1943. Also, they were members of the 88th Infantry Division and the 301st Army Regiment. I found another article in the newspaper on October 10th of 1943. Private Fred E. Gibson returned to his post with the 88th Division at the U.S. Armed Forces at Sam Houston, Texas, last week after a two-week furlough. A family dinner was given for the soldier and his buddy, Private First Class Arnold Rose, at the Gibson home during their visit. Those attending besides the honored guests and host and hostess were Mr. and Mrs. Arch McLean, Mr. and Mrs. Willis Hipwell, Mr. and Mrs. Elmer Rose, and Mr. and Mrs. Theron Phillips. This is the only information we have that the four had a furlough before they were sent overseas, and there isn't any specific article about Hunt and uh, Moline, but I think we can assume that since they were all together, all four came home on a two-week furlough. We talked last week a little bit about the war in Italy and how there were two camps of thought on what the Allies should do after their victory over Rommel in North Africa. The American generals wanted to send everyone to Italy, all the supplies, equipment, and men to begin training for the D-Day invasion of Normandy. Churchill wanted them to stay in the Mediterranean, beginning with the island of Malta, then Sicily, and then moving into Italy. 
Eisenhower eventually made the decision to move forward with the campaign in Italy while still preparing for the Normandy invasion. In July of 1943, the Italians had overthrown Mussolini and surrendered all of the Italian armies to the Allies. The Allies were then able to take Malta and Sicily and moved on to Anzio Beach in the Italian mainland. But the Germans were prepared to defend. They created the Gustav Line, which was a 100-mile line of defense that ran through the middle of Italy from west to east, directly through Monte Cassino. There had been a two-week-long effort by the Allies to try and break through the German Gustav Line and get into Rome. And this is on May 12th, when Private Moline was also killed, the same day as Private East and Sergeant Hunt. I did a little more research this week on that day, and it looks like that Hunt, Rose, and Moline were in Company F of the 351st. They were approaching a forward slope when machine gun fire stopped the company and caused many casualties, including their lieutenant, Colonel Kendall. He was shot while he was throwing a hand grenade toward the Germans. Fighting continued for the 351st through May 14th, when they were finally able to get into their target. However, in the meantime, it says the Company F was all but destroyed with either all of its men killed or captured. However, I'm pretty sure Private Gibson is also a member of Company F, and he wasn't killed until the next week. So on May 20th, the 341st Regiment was placed in reserve to reorganize. And so when you think about this, they have got to strategize how to replace all of those who have been wounded or killed. And so I'm sure that Private Gibson knew that his three friends that he had been with and trained with for over a year were all killed on the same day. On that day, May 20th at 2, they were given a new objective, and they were to cut through a new road and mop up the Germans. The history I read said that they moved out in columns of battalions. They were engaged by the enemy, but they successfully knocked out several machine guns and mortars. And on that day, Private First Class Gibson was reported as missing in action. The attempt to cross the Gustav Line was finally successful on June 5, 1944, and only two weeks after Private Gibson was killed, the Allies marched into Rome. On June 9th of 1944, the headlines read, Resident of Taylor killed in Italy. Word was received Thursday that Private First Class Harold F. Moline, 21, son of John E. and Mary Moline of Taylor, was killed in action on May 14th. And this is a misprint because he was actually killed on May 12th. Private Moline entered the Army in November 1942 and went through training at Camp Gruber, Oklahoma, later going to Louisiana State and Cap Houston, Texas. He left for overseas in December of 1943, going first to Africa. He also saw combat at Anzio and Casino. Private First Class Moline was born in Taylor. He attended Weber County High School and was organist for the Weber County Seminary. He was also a member of the Singleton Orchestra, playing at dances all throughout Weber County. Besides his parents, he is survived by the following sisters, Maybelle Salisbury, June Byington, and Doris Moline of Taylor, and one brother, John A. Moline, now serving in the U.S. Navy somewhere in the South Pacific. On July 12th of 1944, the newspaper article reads, Three Utahns are missing in action. Names of three Utahns reported as missing in the Mediterranean area were included on the War Department casualty list. They are Private First Class Rudolph F. Blecka, son of Mrs. Thelma F. Blecka, 3644 Grant, 
Private First Class Fred E. Gibson, son of Mrs. Jane H. Gibson, Route 2 Ogden, and Second Lieutenant Voss H. Robinson, husband of Mrs. Voss Robinson of Route 1 in Ogden. So there we go. There's more names, so I've got to do more research. I found out that Private First Class Black had made it home, but Second Lieutenant Robinson died in Italy on April 12th, making Italy one of the deadliest places for the men of Weber County. So now we're going to move to a, another story from a sailor from Taylor, and it is, again, one of the most heartbreaking stories that I have read so far. Yelmer Joseph Anderson was born on May 5th, 1924, to Joseph and Catherine Anderson. When the war started in 1941, Yelmer was just 17, and his brother Irwin was 18 but they enlisted together on November 23, 1942 in Salt Lake City, and they both joined the Navy. Yalmer had to have his father's permission in order to join. The next article was on June 18, 1943. Erwin Andrew and Joseph Yalmer Anderson, sons of Mr. and Mrs. Joseph A. Anderson of Taylor, are in the Navy. Erwin, a seaman second class, received his training at Farragut, Idaho. Joseph, a petty officer third class, also trained at Farragut. He is now taking training as an aerial gunner at Purcell. So although they enlisted together like so many brothers, um, they're going to be separated now. So this is going to be another story about waiting for answers and not knowing, but it's going to take decades for the family to find out what happened to Yelmer. There is a story in the Home Country magazine called The Homefront Also Sacrificed by Al Cooper, and I'm going to read you his article. In the course of World War I, as service stars hung in the windows of many, no most American homes, citizens were often reminded by public service announcements of the great truth of war that they also serve who only wait. Whether it be for the overdue airmail envelope from overseas, or worse yet, the dreaded War Department telegram, the waiting game was painful and ever-present as part of the home front. For Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Anderson of Ogden, Utah, the long wait began with notification that the U.S. Navy PV-1 patrol bomber, on which their son Joseph Yalmer Anderson was a crew member, was missing and presumed down on a flight from the Naval Air Station in Whidbey Island, Washington, on December 26, 1943. Because of the flight's mission to carry out anti-submarine patrols, it was assumed by the family that the twin-engine Lockheed Ventura, overrun by a violent storm, had gone down over the sea. It was not until June 1944 that the Canadian military discovered the actual crash site at the most remote tip of Vancouver Island in a locale known as Lawn Point. But still, the details of the crash and its investigation remained cloaked in wartime history. The quote-unquote final words seem to be an official letter from the Secretary of the Navy confirming the presumed death of aviation ordnance man 3rd Class Anderson, dated more than a year later on January 15, 1945. On June 14, 1944, the Standard Examiner reported, Memorial rites will be held in Taylor. Memorial services will be conducted in the LDS Taylor Ward Meeting House, Thursday, June 15th at 8 p.m. for Private Harold Moline, 21, son of John and Mary F. Moline, and Seaman 3rd Class Joseph Yelmer Anderson, 20, son of Joseph and Catherine P. Anderson, both families from Taylor. Both boys entered the service in November of 1942, and a joint farewell party was held. Private Moline 
left for overseas duty in December 1943. He saw duty in Africa and Zealand Casino with the 5th Army. He is survived by the following sisters, June Byington, Mabel Salisbury, and Doris Molina Taylor, one brother, John A. Moline, who is now serving in the Pacific, two brothers-in-law, John F. Salisbury, serving with the U.S. Army in Italy, and Erwin Byington at Aberdeen Training Center in Maryland. So Private First Class Moline has a brother-in-law in Italy, so I tried to find out what division that he was in. I couldn't locate that particular information, but I know he was released from the Army on August 1, 1945. Seaman Anderson was born on May 5, 1924 in Hooper. He took his basic training at Farragut for four months, later taking aerial gunner training at Camp Norman, Oklahoma, and completed his training at Camp Stamford, Florida. He was reported as missing in action on December 26, 1943 while doing patrol duty over the Aleutian Islands from a base in Washington State. Besides his parents, he is survived by the following brothers, Erwin Anderson, serving with the U.S. Navy in Australia, Vernal and Keith of Taylor, and two sisters, Louise Wise and Bertha Anderson, both of Taylor. So going back to Al Cooper's story, but there was in fact much more to this story, details of which revealed themselves to Vancouver Island residents, and which were later the subject matter of one or two local journalists who had no idea of how to communicate with any family members in the United States. And so the waiting went on for extended family members, cousins, nephews, and a growing posterity who never stopped wondering. It is correctly said that for every battlefield casualty, there is a circle of at least 100 people whose lives are touched and unsettled by the absence of that lump one. So what Canadian investigators discovered on the ground was that the aircraft fuselage had survived the crash relatively intact, and that one of the six crew members of the Ventura was sufficiently mobile to be able to first care for and eventually bury five deceased crewmates. With the benefit of Whidbey NES records, it was determined that Yelmer Anderson, the 19-year-old from Ogden, who had been the tail gunner, was the surviving crewman. There was evidence at the crash site that he had made pathways to the rocky shoreline in an attempt to find food and water for the others before death claimed them from their injuries. But all attempts to find what had happened to Anderson uncovered no answers to that final question. Members of the Canadian and U.S. forces blew up the aircraft and its bombs and ditched the still-secret Noran bomb site at sea and completed proper burial for five of the American crewmen. So this story is also told in a book called Invisible Heroes of World War II by Jerry Barrowman. So he says they were surprised when they got to the crash to find evidence that crew members had survived, including remnants of a well-used path from the beach leading up to the wreckage of the aircraft. The remains of a fire pit and fish bones indicated that their meals had been prepared and eaten. A second path through the thick grass led down to a different spot on the beach where they discovered a remnant of the aircraft's plexiglass windshield. It was propped against a rock in such a fashion that it would reflect the sun's rays in the direction of the small town of Winter Harbor. There was also a makeshift flagpole with one of Yalmer Anderson's t-shirts hung to attract attention. Following the original path to the wreckage, the investigators found an angled row of logs placed tightly together. At the top of the angle was a log placed perpendicular to the others. Under the logs, investigators found the remains of five members of the crew, 
placed carefully side by side, a makeshift grave designed to protect the bodies from the elements and perhaps wild animals as much as possible. The investigators discovered that two of the crew members had suffered broken bones which had started to knit back together, proof that the men were alive for some time before their death. The only crew member not accounted for was Yammer Anderson. It was clear that he had lived long enough to wear the two paths through the grass, as well as to watch each of his comrades perish from exposure and starvation. As the tail gunner situated at the back of the plane, it is possible that he suffered the fewest injuries, which is why he was able to outlive the others. The placement of his flag and mirrors clearly showed that he was hoping to attract attention and rescue, but no one ever found him. For some unknown reason, perhaps because of the pressures of the war, the U.S. Navy had failed to notify the Royal Canadian Air Force or the villagers across the harbor that the Ventura was missing, so there was no one looking for them. Yalmar's remains were never located. It's possible that he decided to try and find his way to civilization just five short miles across the water, but much further traveling overland because of the bay. Moreover, the topography of that part of Vancouver Island was so steep to the point of being nearly impassable. During one of the most severe winters on record, he simply could never survive such a journey. And it is pretty probable that Yalmar died alone. At that time, the Navy returned the remains of the five deceased crewmen to their families. As noted in a brief article in the Oak Harbor Island County Farm Bureau, dated June 6, 1944 which again was also D-Day invasion. The worst fears of the five of six crew members' families were confirmed, but the return of the remains allowed them only to grieve and lay those loved ones to rest. But that was not the case for the Andersons. While it seemed impossible that Yammer had survived, they still hoped he had, and perhaps he had found shelter inland or found someone to help and would show up in the town of Winter Harbor. Nevertheless, the days and weeks continued to pass, and finally, on June 12, 1945, James Forrestal, Secretary of the Navy, wrote a letter to the Andersons. Mr. and Mrs. Joseph A. Anderson, Rural Farm Delivery No. 1, Ogden, Utah. My dear Mr. and Mrs. Anderson, after a review of the available information, I am reluctantly forced to the conclusion that your son, Joseph Yelmer Anderson, Aviation Ordnance Man 3rd Class, United States Naval Reserve, is deceased. He was officially reported to be missing on the 26th of December, 1943, when the plane he had known to be aboard crashed on Vancouver Island, Canada. In compliance with Section 5 of Public Law 450, the 77th Congress, as amended, the death of your son is presumed to have occurred on December 27, 1944, which is the day following the expiration of 12 months of the missing plus one day. I extend to you my sincerest sympathy in your sorrow and hope you may find comfort in the knowledge that your son made the supreme sacrifice in the service of his country. The Navy shares in your bereavement and has felt the loss of his service. Sincerely yours, James Forrestal. Continuing with Barrowman's book, more than 50 years after the crash, a budding local journalist and historian, Ruth Botel, decided to investigate the events of December 1943 and June 1944. A childhood memory from her husband, Carl Botel, sparked her interest. 
Through the years, he had remembered a rainy day in 1943 when, as an eight-year-old child, he had heard the sounds of heavy piston engines, characteristic of a large aircraft. He was outside when he saw the large airplane fly overhead in clouds, unseen, but apparently flying very low. This was unusual on the northern end of Vancouver Island, so the young boy paid particular attention to it, especially when the aircraft came lumbering by a few minutes later, the sound growing in intensity as it approached at a low altitude. The sound faded as the craft passed into the distance. Carl remembers this happening three or four times, as if the air crew were looking for something. Eventually, the noise stopped, and he returned to other activities. The discovery of the wrecked aircraft six months later caused those who had heard the Ventura flying overhead in December to put the two events together. It appears likely that Captain Cranny had been searching for a break in the clouds that would reveal the Port Hardy Air Force Base where he could land. When that did not occur, he apparently chose what appeared to be a very smooth grassy area of Lawn Point. However, although it looks like a large well-groomed golf course from the air, in reality it is quite different. It is not suitable for an emergency landing, as evidenced by the fact that an uninterrupted set of deep ruts were still evident 50 years later. The plane crashed deep in a grove of evergreen trees at the end of the grassy area. Because no one had kept any records locally of what happened after the bodies were recovered in 1944, Ruth Botel struggled to find the information about the craft. Working much like a detective, she found the official Canadian death certificates of the five deceased crew members. With that information at hand, she was able to piece the story together. In 2000, she wrote a letter to each of the families of the deceased crew members asking for more information. The letter to the Andersons was sent to Joseph's namesake, Joseph Yammer Anderson. He is the son of Yammer's older brother, Erwin, who he enlisted with. He responded enthusiastically to her request for information in a letter that was dated March 6, 2000. Joe wrote that he was named in honor of this fallen uncle, and his father had never told him much about his namesake. He always said he went down in a plane when he was on a training mission and that they could never find his body. It is really quite amazing how little the family ever knew about what had happened. But Ruth Botel was not through. She wrote two articles in the North Island Gazette that appeared on Wednesday, June 1st and Wednesday, June 8, 2005, just prior to a memorial service at the crash site held in honor of Yalmer. For a few gentle hours the morning of June 22, 2005, on a remote beach off of the northwest coast of Vancouver Island, and with the strains of a Scottish lament playing on the bagpipes, the Air Force ensign flew in the breeze. On the sandy stretch where human footprints are rarely seen, a dozen Americans quietly strolled, some searching the jungle that was close to the shore. They had come to pay their respects to a loved one who had perished 62 years earlier after surviving the crash of a U.S. Navy Ventura patrol bomber back in the dark days of World War II. Lost in a winter storm in 1943 and running low on fuel, the pilot was hoping to find the airport at Port Hardy. Instead, he glimpsed a deceptively green and level stretch of land, Lawn Point, near the mouth of the sound, and attempted to land. We will never know what happened exactly, but for some reason, after his wheels touched down, he aborted the landing, but didn't have enough speed to clear the trees and crashed. The crew survived and desperately waited to be rescued. 
When searchers finally arrived nearly a half a year later, there were five bodies neatly arranged under some driftwood. The sixth crewman, Joseph Anderson, was never found. Now Joe's family had come to find closure and pay their respects. When 101st Squadron member Lola Pine heard about the Americans' desire to visit the crash site, he felt the squadron should do whatever it could to make their visit memorable. He immediately set out, arranging for a color party and remembrance service. With the cooperation of the 888th Comax Wing, the Royal Canadian Legion, Parks Canada, the 19th Wing, the Canadian Rangers, and others, the 101st Squadron did indeed make the occasion a fitting recognition of brave men who gave their lives in defense of their country. A year later, the 101st erected a permanent marker at that site. Though missing in action since 1943, Joseph Yalmar Anderson is no longer forgotten. He has a headstone in his honor next to his parents at the West Weber Cemetery. On November 22, 1948, there was an article, Joint Services Will Be Held on Wednesday. Joint funeral services will be conducted Wednesday at 1 p.m. at the Marchuary on 3408 Washington. For Private First Class Arnold E. Rouse, 22, Private First Class Fred E. Gibson, 21, and Private Harold F. Moline, 21, by Bishop T. Leroy Clark of the LDS Taylor Ward. Interment for Private First Class Rose will be in the Ogden City Cemetery and for Private First Class Gibson and Private Moline in the West Weber Cemetery. Military honors will be accorded by the Fred J. Grant Post, 1481 VFW, Ogden. The three servicemen attended schools in Warren and Plain City, entered the Army the same day, trained at Camp Gruber, Oklahoma, and left together for overseas duty in December 1943. They were serving with the 5th Army in Italy and met death within a few days of one another. Prior to entering the service, they had all been employed at the American Packing and Provision Company. And just for one clarification, although it says that Arnold Rose was buried in the Ogden City Cemetery, he's actually buried in the small cemetery in Warren. And so that's the story of five young men who lived in Plain City, Warren, and Taylor, all growing up within just a few miles of each other who all died within the same few months in World War II. So thanks for joining. Remember, the podcast is available on my Facebook page, Weber County's Greatest Generation, or on iTunes. Thanks.